So here we are. I fully expected to be sitting where y'all are, listening to an inspirational speaker this weekend. God had other plans. And now I'm up here. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. I'm glad to be here. I, I told God a long time ago that if he ever wanted me to speak or do something like this, that it would have to be all him because I wasn't going to push. So he pushed me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this evening. Thank you that you are good, that you have made a way to save us, that you have done everything it takes to bring us into fellowship with you. So God, I pray that as we're on this weekend to take a breath, to take a, a bit of a rest, a, a place away from our normal everyday life, God, that you will meet us here with great fellowship with you and with others. I pray that you will help me to speak clearly, help our hearts and our minds to be open to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Repent, rejoice, repeat, embracing the rhythms of the Christian life. Let's start by unpacking a little bit of why we're here and where we're going, and then we'll jump into our first topic, repent. Rhythms, God loves them. Just read the first chapter of Genesis and you'll find rhythm. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. Day and night are about as rhythmic as it gets. Every morning we get a new morning and every evening it comes just on time. Even when we mess with daylight savings time, it's like clockwork. It always happens. The seasons show God's rhythm. Winter always comes after fall and spring always comes after winter. Even, even growing up in the jungle, where we joked that there were four seasons, hot and hotter, wet and wetter, there was a rhythm. There was dry season. There was rainy season. There was mongo season. There was high water season. And it was always banana season. God built rhythm into the Israelites' lives. Six days you work. The seventh, you rest. Every week, all year, one day out of seven, you rest. Every morning and every evening, there was a sacrifice at the tabernacle or temple. Every single day. It reminded the people of sin and redemption. There were feasts that God instituted. Every year, there were certain days when the people met for celebration or repentance or dedication. Rhythms for the year. God even made our bodies to have rhythms. We don't always appreciate those rhythms, but they're there. Month in and month out, our womanly bodies follow a rhythm. So what is this rhythm of the Christian life? We're less, we're less scripted than Old Testament Israel. We all seem to have different traditions and different cultural and family ways of doing things. But is there a truly biblical rhythm to doing life? I believe there is. There are probably several that we could name, but the rhythm we're going to look at is the basic one of repent, rejoice, and repeat. We start with what I find to be the hardest one of all. Repenting is never easy. It's humbling, so it goes against our grain. But let's dive in. I want this to touch my stubborn heart tonight. I want to learn to repent. I want to learn to have a broken heart. This is what we're going to look at tonight. What is repentance? When do we repent? Why repent? 
How do we repent? And then I'll answer some common questions. I'm not drawing this from any one passage in scripture, but I will be referencing Psalm 51 a lot. So if you want to put a finger in Psalm 51, it may help. First, what is repentance? I'm going to use a medical metaphor throughout the weekend. I'm comparing repentance to our pulse, our heartbeat. It is absolutely vital for life. No pulse means we're dead. Tonight's topic is crucial. In a group of women this big, there might be those that have no pulse. I hope tonight will be one where we're sobered and challenged. We cannot be saved without repentance. But it is also a rhythm of the Christian life. It's, it's a normal everyday thing, just as much as our pulse is. Day in and day out, our heart keeps beating. Without it, we die. The minute we think we don't need repentance, or we've made it far enough in life to be beyond repentance, we're in danger. So what is it? Repentance is doing an about face. We were headed in one direction, and now we're headed the other way. We were on Satan's team by default of being human. Then comes the about face. We turn away from self and sin, and we turn toward Jesus and his saving work for us. That's what repentance is in a nutshell. It's seeing the truth about ourselves. We're sinners. It's seeing truth about God. He's holy. There's a gap between us that is not bridgeable by anything we can do or say or pay or think. We are in a predicament. We're in trouble and there is no way out on our own. To repent is to see this. And then instead of shying away from it or excusing it or ignoring it or becoming angry over it, we run to God for mercy. That's repentance. We next look at, well, when do we repent? There's an easy answer. Now. Repentance is for now. If you've never turned away from sin for the first time, now is the time to repent. Now, before it's too late. Paul says in Acts 17, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Don't wait another night. Do business with God tonight, right here. Make the about face. Ask God to have mercy on you and tell him you want to be his and not your own. Okay, but what about Christians? We repented of our sins and joined God's team long ago. What about us? When do we repent? The simple answer is now. We all need repentance in our everyday life because we sin. Every day we ignore God's word. We say the wrong thing. We live for ourselves. We hurt other people. We forget God's goodness. We're petty, discontent, worried, lustful, greedy, self-centered. Now is the time to repent. As soon as we see the sin, it's time to repent. This is the rhythm of the Christian life. We have no time to sit back on our laurels and think that we've repented once. We're saved, so nothing needs to be done. Yes, it is true. We cannot contribute to our salvation with continued repentance. 
Our eternal security is not dependent on our repenting of every sin every day. If it were, we would be sunk because we cannot remember or catalog our sin. But the more we see of our sin and we repent of it, the closer we come in fellowship to God. Repentance takes, takes humility and God requires and delights in humility. It looks something like this. Dear God, I burst out in anger again. I, I can't say I can't believe it. I did it again because I know my heart is deceitful and sinful. But I'm sad that I've sinned against you who have loved me and blessed me with salvation. Please forgive me and make me more like Jesus. This is a humble heart talking. This is the heart that God loves to see. He is truth. And when we tell him the truth, agreeing with him about our sin, we come closer to him. So repentance is an about face. It's agreeing with God about our sin. And we do it now. No drill sergeant would stand for a sort of kind of maybe about face. And about face happens immediately. It's complete. And that is how our repentance is. It is now. It is complete. We turn from ourselves. We turn from sin. And we turn towards Jesus and his forgiveness. But why repent? And why do Christians have to keep repenting? Listen to Psalm 51, 3. This is the psalm in which David is repenting of his sin of adultery and murder. He says, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. This is a truth that we have to cultivate. It's not a happy truth. We will, in our prideful state, always try to downplay our sin. We will cover it up. We will ignore it as long as we can. Even if we feel mildly guilty all the time, we still cover sin up. We will even say that to think about our sin is to deny grace. That one sounds particularly holy. David had covered up his sin for quite a while, and it didn't seem to bother him too much. But we must grow in this discipline, this area of seeing our sin, we should know that our sin is there. We should see it always before us because, because it is there. Now, this doesn't mean that we're the glummest of people, always a downer to have around brooding over our sin. We do well to spend a few moments on our sin. I'm not talking about sin from long ago, rehashing the sins of our youth or the sins we had before we were believers, or even the sins that have impacted the lives of others. I'm talking about an awareness of sin every day. What about yesterday? Are you hard pressed like I am to think of one way in which you sinned against God? Sin is slippery. It hides. It runs out the back door each time we get distracted. How aware are you of sin on a day-to-day -day basis? Is your sin always before you? In some ways, it's, it's like a wound. When I was about 12, I got a nasty infection on my heel. As missionary kids, we lived barefoot to school, to church, everywhere we went, we were barefoot. So it wasn't surprising that I somehow got infected. I figured I could take care of it myself because if I told my mom, she would send me up to the clinic. So I dosed it with antibiotic cream and I bandaged it up. I think I kept it hidden for about a month. By then I was limping with every step and mom noticed. 
So up to the clinic I went and Aunt Ruth Ward had to do some nasty pressing and pushing to get all the pus out and set me on the way to recovery. <laughs> no, she didn't tell me to wear shoes, just wash it and carry on. As much as the wound was small, it was ever present. It affected my whole body. I limped around and I was in pain all the time. Sin is like that. It's always present. It affects everything we do. We're limping around and we don't even notice. We should. Our sin should be ever before us. If we can't see our own sin, the truth is not in us. Like it says in 1 John 1 8, we're deceiving ourselves. Next time you are alone with God, ask him to show you the sin in your life. Ask him to make it visible. Now, some of you are thinking, what did I get into? Our pastors are always talking about grace and how we shouldn't wallow in our sin. And now I come on retreat and it's an immediate downer. <laughs> Don't worry. Listen on. It gets better, but not for a while yet. One reason to repent is that our sin is ever before us. Another reason to repent is that we're steeped in sin. Look at verse 5 of Psalm 51. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. We are born sinful. David realized this. Here he is repenting of adultery and murder, but he goes deeper to his underlying sinful nature. He admits that he's sinful from birth. Ladies, this is something we have to remember. I think, I think as we get older and we see victory in some areas, we're, we're tempted to rest on our laurels. We're, we're doing better than that unstable person over there. We have more ducks and rows than that person. So we feel good. But our very nature is sinful. Unless we stare that in the face, we won't be able to deal with it. We must see that we were sinners from the get-go. Matthew Henry puts it this way, quote, it is to be sadly lamented by every one of us that we brought into the world with us a corrupt nature, wretchedly degenerate from its primitive purity and rectitude. We have from our birth the snares of sin in our body, the seeds of sin in our souls, and the stain of sin upon both." Unquote. Even if we've had a good day, there's something to repent of, something to humble ourselves before God for. We don't just do some wrong things some days. We are wrong. We're born wrong. We've inherited wrong. And we can't do anything about it. We can't change ourselves or our genetics. We're a fallen race. Every single one of us. This is a reason to repent. Our sin is always before us. Our very nature, nature is sinful. There's another reason for repentance. Here's what David says in verse 16. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. There's nothing David can do about adultery and murder. The penalty for murder was death. The penalty for adultery was death. There is no sacrifice in the Old Testament for a deliberate, thought-out sin. David knows this is not something he can just bring a sheep to the tabernacle, confess, and sacrifice. His only hope is the mercy of God. He says, you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. Now wait, I thought God was the one who came up with the sacrificial system. But David knows that an animal cannot really take away his sin. This is a picture, a symbol only. 
Now we live on this side of the cross, praise God. We've seen God's redemption plan. But do we believe it? Do we lay penance on ourselves? Do we think that we can make up for our sins with good behavior tomorrow? Do we functionally act like our good deeds will make up for our sin and will make God happy? If we do no about face, there's no repentance and no good works are going to smooth things over. God's good graces can't be bought with a bouquet of flowers like some husband who quick buys flowers for his wife after he was angry with her the night before. God doesn't work like that. He wants truth in the innermost parts and truth includes us agreeing with him that we're wrong. When we see that there's nothing we can do to make up for our sin or make it right, we are heading in the right direction. Then we can go to the cross. When we see how bankrupt we are, then there's room for us to see Jesus and his sacrifice on our behalf. Now, I know this sounds like conversion, but the thing is, unbelievers and believers, we need the same thing. We all need to see Jesus and him crucified. Unbelievers need him for the first time. Christians, we, we forget that we need him every day. Not just for strength, we know that, but for repentance. We need his power for our forgiveness. Every day we sin, we need that cross. Not because we're not saved, but because the cross is where we see the grace that keeps us. We see the beauty of Jesus and his saving work. So repentance isn't about face. We repent because our sin is always before us, because our nature is sinful, and because there is nothing we can do to pay for sin. But how, how does this work? How do we do it? What's the result? Now this is the good part. All we do is throw ourselves on the mercy of God. David says right in verse one, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. It is only possible to be saved and only possible to be forgiven through the mercy of God. He moves us to plead for mercy and gives us the heart to run to him. Ask him for mercy. That's all it takes. Humble yourself and ask. That's the hard part and the easy part. And don't miss the beautiful word, abundant. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. He is not sort of merciful. He is not grudgingly merciful. He has abundant mercy, overflowing, plenty for you, plenty for me. Trust him, not yourself. He is an abundance of mercy. The result of humbling ourselves and throwing ourselves on God's mercy is his forgiveness. He loves to pardon. Oh, listen to Micah 7, 18 and 19. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. We don't have to work up emotions to repent. We don't bring a sacrifice. We don't make deals, promise good behavior, or perform penance. 
Forgiveness is all of God, and it's a sure thing. In Psalm 51, David realizes it is all of God. Look at the verbs David uses. Purge me with hyssop. Wash me. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. They're all God verbs. They're verbs for God to do. Not one of them is something David does. All of it is of God. What a blessing. What a relief. When we run to the cross confessing our sin, he opens his arms wide and receives us as children. It's when we hide our sin or make excuses or ignore it that we're miserable. When we're humble and honest, we find rest for our soul in the goodness and forgiveness of God. This is the first step in the rhythm of the Christian life. Repent. Now I've come to the end of my talk on repentance, but I realize there are questions that some people may have. Over the years, I've heard different issues come up in regard to repentance, and I'd like to try to address these for a minute. First, should I wait to repent until I feel differently? No, the time to repent is now. There's a part in the book of Anne of Green Gables where Anne refuses to ask forgiveness of Mrs. Rachel Lynde. Matthew comes in and tells Anne, oh, she doesn't really need to be sorry. She just has to smooth it over. And then Anne works up this doozy of an apology. This is not what we do with God. We must agree with him our sin is wrong. Be sorry. But that doesn't mean we have to work up this fantastic apology and, and work tears in our eyes. Remember, repentance isn't about face. It's not working up of emotion. It's turning to Jesus. Stop and think about the example Jesus himself gives us in the younger son of the father. He wasted his inheritance. He lived recklessly. The Bible does not say he waited and worked up tears. It says, but when he came to himself, he arose and came to his father. As soon as he realized that he could at least receive bread from his dad, he left what he was doing and he came home. He told his dad he was unworthy and he was given mercy. Second question, what if my past is really nasty? First of all, look to the saints of old. The people in the Bible are not pristine examples of holy lives. Paul was a persecutor of church. Jacob was a scoundrel. Tamar seduced her father-in-law. Rahab was a prostitute and Abraham was an idol worshiper before God called him. And yet God called and he used each one of them in his grand design of the kingdom. Now, here's the attitude Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says we should have about our sin. Quote, if you look at your past and are depressed, it means you are listening to the devil. But if you, if you look at the past and say, unfortunately, it is true I was blinded by the God of this world, but thank God his grace was more abundant. He was more sufficient and his love and mercy came upon me in such a way that all is forgiven. I'm a new man. Then all is well. That is the way to look at the past. And if we do not do that, I'm almost tempted to say that we deserve to be miserable. Why believe the devil instead of believing God? Spiritual depression, page 75. Third question. What about the consequences of sin that still haunt me? This is hard because although you are a new person, 
you may have left hurts behind you. You may have broken relationships and sad things that you cannot forget. There may be people who no longer trust you. There are things you cannot fix. And I cannot promise you that God will fix them in this life. The consequences of sin in general are all around us. Everyone has broken pieces. The consequences of our own particular sin are heavy and they're unbearable at times. God promises in Psalm 34 that he himself will be near to the brokenhearted. In Psalm 147, he heals the brokenhearted and he binds up their wounds. And Jesus says, quoting Isaiah, that God sent him to bind up the brokenhearted. So in, in your sin pain, do not doubt his forgiveness, but look for him to come near you. Look for God himself to bind up your wounds with the tender care that only he can give. And look to heaven where he will wipe away tears and all will be made good. God will meet us in the suffering of our consequences. He will not beat us up. He has already forgiven and he will be near to you. The last question, what if I can't forgive myself? Oh, dear sister, I want to deal gently with you here, but there is truth that needs to be seen. The Bible nowhere says that we must forgive ourselves. The Bible says that it is against God whom we have sinned. It is the offended party who does the forgiving, not the offender. When we say we cannot forgive ourselves, we are placing ourselves above God, acting as though we know more about sin and forgiveness than he does. Listen to what Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes about this. You say, my trouble is that terrible sin I've committed. Let me tell you in the name of God, that is not your trouble. Your trouble is unbelief. You do not believe the word of God. I'm referring to the first epistle of John where we read this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is a categorical statement made by God, the Holy Spirit. There is no limit to it. So if you do not believe that word, and if you go on dwelling on that sin, I say to you, you are not accepting the word of God. You are not taking God at his word. You do not believe what he tells you. And that is your real sin, spiritual depression. The issue is belief in what God says he's done for us at the cross. The next two sessions will hopefully help you see how to combat the devil and his lies in this area. Rhythms. The first one is repentance, our pulse. Take stock tonight. Do you have a pulse? Are you alive in Christ? If not, repent now while there's time. If you're a Christian, are you repenting or trying to get out of it? Are you seeing your sin? and taking it joyfully to God who stands ready to forgive? Are you trusting him and his word where forgiveness is concerned? If you want prayer for anything that God has revealed to you tonight, there will be ladies ready to pray with you in front. Don't wait. The time to repent is now.